You are listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast, the weekly show where we take a look at some epic marketing failures, along with some pretty amazing brand rescues and comebacks. And now your hosts, Nico and Chad. Hey, Chad. Yeah. 2020 has been such an interesting year. So which is your favorite Marketing Rescue podcast episode of the last 40 episodes we did? Ooh, that's such a good question. I have a lot that I would probably put into that favorite category. They vary, right? Yeah, there's just so many different types of episodes that we've done across everything from conspiracy theories to very specific marketing tactics. But I think If I have to think back to what my favorite episode might be, I think it might be actually episode number one, The Man Who Flew Too Much. Yeah, yeah. And that's a nostalgic episode for me as well, because that was kind of like the birth of the Marketing Rescue Podcast. You and I were wanting to to do a podcast and we were like throwing around a few different ideas and then we found this story and we're like, hey, this is really, really interesting. (laughs) Why don't we unpack this and tell the story? And that was like the birth of 40 weeks ago, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we've come a long way since then and it's just, I think, really fun to look back at that. And it is a great story. It really is. It is. Yeah. So we actually looked at some of the analytics a couple of weeks ago of all our downloads, and we noticed that only a few hundred people actually listen to every single episode, all 40 episodes, which is reasonable, right? (laughs) We didn't expect everybody to like binge listen the Marketing Rescue podcast. So what we've decided to do for the next three weeks, for the rest of January, is to pull forward some of our favorite episodes and edit it into like a showreel, like highlights, so to speak. We're going to be featuring three episodes per week. Yeah, and so to get started with that, we'll start with my favorite, which was episode number one, The Man Who Flew Too Much. Nice. So the year is 1978, and American Airlines is hit really hard by this thing called the Airline Deregulation Act of, you guessed it, 1978. And they posted a $76 million loss in 1980. Yeah, and I think that's close to a quarter billion dollars in today's money. Jeez. Big chunk of change. Yeah, that that really, really puts it into perspective how bad they were hurting at this point. So American Airlines President Robert Crandall wants to, in his words, cut American down to the bone. So they need cash, but in the 80s, interest rates were insanely high. We're talking like 18%, 21% for a mortgage, like just basic consumer lending. The rates were at record highs. So they start to really get creative and start thinking about, okay, how can we find other ways to generate this cash? Is there something more kind of inventive that we can do? And so they decide that they're going to sell their wealthiest customers the ultimate travel perk, as they called it, which was basically an unlimited first class ticket for life. Hmm. Yeah. Like, like really think about that for a second. Unlimited, first class for life. And the reason that it's so complicated is because of this guy, Steve Rothstein. So Steve, he essentially costs them millions per year with over 10,000 lifetime flights. He actually became known as the man who flew too much. So probably... You know, he's the most infamous person that bought the pass because of what ended up happening later. 
And the reason he was even able to buy the pass to begin with was because he was a stockbroker for Bear Stearns Bank in Chicago. He was already traveling a lot and was on the radar of American Airlines. And in 1979, he had actually become the second highest grossing stockbroker at Bear Stearns. Wow. So he's doing really well. And of course, you know, he's traveling around to visit clients. And that's how he was able to afford the pass by the time he bought it in 1987. So American Airlines approaches him and says that based on the amount, in quotes, based on the amount I traveled, the unlimited air pass would be a great purchase. It was like a bond. Instead of paying me dividends in cash, they were paying dividends in air travel. There's another interesting traveler during this time uh, that made the headlines, and his name is Jacques Vroom. Vroom, vroom. Like vroom, vroom, exactly. (laughs) Almost like Zoom, Zoom, the ad campaign. (laughs) Exactly. Very appropriate last name. Yeah. So Jacques was a direct marketing catalog consultant in Texas, and just during this time, that was the, the industry to be in. A quote from him, I've never bought anything over $400,000 in my life, but I took out a loan of 12% over five years. And I did this because it gave me a competitive advantage for life. Yeah, I would say so. I think (laughs) just about anybody that was able to tap into that would have a competitive advantage. Well, he made sure that he's tapping into it because he flew an average of 2 million miles a year for a total of 20 years. I mean, and really when you think about it, like the amount of value that you get out of that, right? Like it's only a five-year loan. And granted, it's 12%, you know, the thing isn't cheap, but I mean, the lifetime value of this is amazing. And like Rothstein, Vroom essentially trusted the sanctity of the contract he'd signed with American Airlines. So in his words, they used the word unlimited and lifetime, and then the took it all away. So Vroom allegedly booked flights for strangers. Allegedly. Allegedly, and accepted payments for tickets on certain occasions. And this is really where things start to kind of unravel a little bit in the story. The main thing at this point is that American Airlines are losing money hand over fist, and they're trying a way to get out of the deal. Yeah. And what did American Airlines do to solve the problem? Like any sensible American company would do, they sued. In 1990, the airline raised the price of the unlimited pass with Companion to $600,000. In 93, they bumped it up to just over a million dollars. And in 94, they stopped selling the unlimited pass altogether. 13 years later, and while the lawsuit is still going on. Then they somehow, for some reason, decide, you know what? Let's just try this one more time. So in 2004, American decides to offer the unlimited air pass one last time in the Neiman Marcus Christmas catalog of all places. In a catalog, yep. (laughs) Yes, very widespread audience. And they decide to offer it at a price point of $3 million plus an optional companion pass for $2 million more. And surprisingly, they sold zero. Now, I mean, this most probably was because it was either too expensive or because people didn't really trust the brand anymore. I mean, why would you go and and buy this unlimited pass from a company that's actively suing people who have purchased the unlimited pass, right? That's using the products. Right, yeah. So pretty risky investment, especially considering the price point. So, you know, they sell zero and, and it kind of fails at that point. And in 2008, 
Rothstein gets stripped of his unlimited pass. So here's the story from Rothstein in his words. We went to the airport. I went into the ticket counter. I checked in my luggage for London. I walked to the gate after going through security. And just as I was walking on the plane, they handed me a letter terminating the unlimited air pass. Why did they let me go to the gate? Why didn't they tell me up front, which would have been the nice thing to do? Yeah, it actually turns out that a letter had been drafted to notify Steve that they were concerned about his behavior using the pass, but they decided not to send it, and partly because they didn't want the bad press. I think greed is is the big thing, and then, and then also there's I think a component of fear. You know, they really let this fear drive them to making kind of some bad decisions, both logistically and as it relates to marketing. I mean, the part of the story where they, you know, revoke his pass without even trying to work with him on it, you know, that's totally from this position of fear of of what's going to happen in the press, but it ended up then creating significantly worse of a press storm versus if they would have just done the right thing and just worked with him on it. A lot of the decisions that they made initially when they rolled it out, and then later on, how they managed it felt very knee-jerk. Yeah. And I'm sure that somebody somewhere did some financial planning. But at some point, they must have realized, hang on a minute, we're losing a lot of money here. But at that point, they still kept on offering the pass. And they kept on saying that with this pass, you can donate all your miles to whoever you <laughs> want to donate it to. That is just very, very, very poor planning. I think there's a part of it that also is a little bit based on ego. And the fact that if you don't have the right processes in place to check those egos, it's very easy for charismatic or highly influential leaders to kind of lead an organization down a path that might not be the best path because of that lack of process, that lack of protections to make sure that we're really pressure testing uh, everything that we do. Yeah, and don't assume anything in marketing. Do your research. Don't assume, oh, don't worry, nobody will take advantage of this. Or, oh, that is the worst case scenario, but nobody's going to rack up 20 million miles you know, <laughs> over a lifetime. Yeah. You know, and then lastly, as it relates to process, is really having some sort of a process in place where you can learn from your failures. Like we've seen by doing the research on this, they kept on offering the same thing after they failed multiple times. At right. some point, you need to, you need some sort of a gate and some sort of a process in place to say, this was a bad decision. How can we recoup from it and what can we do moving forward versus taking the same old thing and implementing it the whole, every single time afterwards. So these four things, greed, fear, or lack of planning, and lack of understanding your customers are reoccurring themes that we'll see throughout every episode moving forward because it's something that, that keeps on popping back. Yep, and it can really affect your marketing in a variety of different ways. Well, that was a lot of fun going back and reliving the story from episode one. Jacques Vroom. Yes. (laughs) That's a crazy story. Absolutely. So yours was the next one, your favorite. The brand that went back to their future for Coke. Yeah, episode three. It's just such a wild ride. (laughs) I don't know how else to put it. I work in marketing and I've been working in marketing for such a long time, but I had no idea that people were so hooked on the taste of (laughs) Coca-Cola and how how upset they got and what an uprising it caused when they just tweaked (laughs) their recipe. 
And I think there's just so many nuggets of marketing goals in that episode, all the way from really listening to your consumer to the ability to fudge consumer research, which I think a lot of marketers and agencies do on a regular basis to validate their strategy, all the way to a brand just admitting that they were wrong. And we don't often see that and being humble about us. Just the whole fact that it was in the 80s and the clips that we got to people talking about it, it's just, it's just like a Miami Vice type episode. I just love it. It's absolutely my favorite. Well, let's go ahead and give a listen. Nice. All right, here we go. Episode three, the brand that went back to the future. Let's set the scene. In 1975, Pepsi launched a campaign called the Pepsi Challenge. And throughout this whole Pepsi Challenge campaign, it was a blind test of the two different products, the two different sodas, Pepsi and Coke. And in the United States, it started to show that people actually preferred Pepsi over Coca-Cola. Interesting. And this, yep. And in this campaign, you can imagine Pepsi milked this like crazy. <laughs> sure. So as a result of this, Pepsi started gaining ground over Coca-Cola in the United States. They started chipping away slowly but surely over Coca-Cola's market share. In 1985, Coca-Cola share led over the chief competitor in the flagship market, the US, and their flagship product, yeah. Coke, started slipping for 15 consecutive years. Well, that's a, a long and steady slide. Sure is. So the customer awareness of Coca-Cola started dipping, right? And the board and the CEO and the executive team, they noticed. Sure. So, so in desperate times, calls for desperate measures. So they announced in 1985 that they're going to yank the 100-year-old recipe of Coca-Cola and introduced a new product called New Coke. Wow. So they're not introducing a new product. They're literally just completely pulling the old one. Absolutely. And at this time, the Coca-Cola CEO said in a press release, this is the surest move the company has ever made. So Coke's market research team had gone through this massive research project in which they conducted over 200,000 taste tests that confirmed that subjects preferred new Coke over both the 100-year-old recipe and over Pepsi. So this is like really critical, right? They, they get this data that tells them that this new Coke would outperform both of those two pieces. And 200,000 tests. That's pretty thorough. That's not a small sample size. And so this is the point in the story where things really start to get interesting as a few critical kind of mistakes were made. So first, the taste tests were done with just a few ounces of soda. But uh, that's definitely not how people, especially Americans, because, you know, we have to do everything big in America, uh, how we consume products, especially soda. So we drink it in 12, 16, 32, and even 64 ounce big gulp servings. So, you know, a much sweeter, more sugary drink, which was what the new Coke uh, recipe was like, may be okay in small doses in those, you know, two ounce servings that they served in the taste tests. But in large amounts, you know, that could actually become a turnoff if you're having to drink, you know, large volumes of very sweet, sugary tasting fluids. So what you're saying is they had an abundance of quantitative research and missed out on the whole qual side, the quantitative side, the behavioral side. The insights were not actually wrong. Both Pepsi's taste tests as well as Coke's tests and surveys confirmed it. The data set was just kind of an incomplete piece of the puzzle that didn't factor in the power of the fact that, 
humans are social animals, right? And we have very deep cultural and emotional attachments. And so that's really easy for us to see now because the impact of social media, but it wasn't so obvious in the 80s. So what happens next is actually really big. It's April 23rd, 1985, when New Coke launches. In the Coca-Cola company's own words, quote, to hear some tell it, April 23rd, 1985, was a day that will live in marketing infamy, spawning consumer angst the likes of which no business has ever seen. Well, it kind of ha- it kind of happened, right? Here we are 35 years later still talking about it. <laughs> yeah, it's very it's amazing. Very prophetic statement. Yep. So the emphasis on the sweeter taste of the new flavor also ran very contrary to all the previous Coke advertising in which, for example, spokesman Bill Cosby had touted Coke's less sweet taste as a reason to prefer it over Mm. Pepsi. Yep. Another big lesson here, know who you are as a brand and why people care about you and make sure that you don't forget that. Over the next 79 days, Coke received over 40,000 calls and letters, including one letter delivered to Goizetta, the CEO, that was addressed to, quote, Chief Dodo (laughs) of the Coca-Cola company. (laughs) So the company hotline, 1-800-GET-COKE, received over 1,500 calls a day compared to around 400 before the change. And a psychiatrist that Coke had actually hired to listen in on calls told executives that some people sounded as if they were discussing the death of a family member. That is incredible. And there was a small but extremely vocal group of objectors. Mainly, they were people from the southeastern United States that considered Coca-Cola to be a vital part of their regional identity and felt alienated by the new formula. So they actually viewed the company's decision to change the formula through the prism of the Civil War as kind of like another surrender to the Yankees. Wow. On the afternoon of July 11th, 1985, Coca-Cola executives held a press conference yet again, and they announced, wait for it, they're bringing Coca-Cola back and they're they're branding it Coca-Cola Classic. Nice. A quote from the COO, Donald Keogh, I just love this quote. He said, our boss is the customer. We want them to know we are really sorry. And this is 79 days after the launch, the new Coke. Wow. Very bold, right? Yeah. This was such a big deal that a lot of networks actually broke their regular programming with a special <laughs> bulletin announcing this. ABC News anchor Peter Jennings interrupted General Hospital, the massive soap opera at the time, with a special bulletin to share the news. On the floor of the U.S. Senate, David <laughs> wow. Pryor called the reintroduction a meaningful moment in U.S. history. So let's like stop for a second here and really picture the customer journey. Right. And the the gaping holes in marketing tactics, you know, to address the entirety of the journey. Imagine for a second, you're a lifetime Coke drinker, Nico. So you've been drinking Coke for 30 to 40 years. Your parents drank Coke, your whole family's into it. You take the Pepsi challenge because you saw the commercials and you actually think, hey, this Pepsi stuff is pretty good. I mean, it's no Coke, but it's good. So Over the next couple of days, you try another Pepsi or two, and that was fun, but then you simply just do what's habitual, right? Mm -hmm. Like you keep picking up that beloved Coke, especially when all Coke did was make it less distinguishable Mm -hmm. between Coke and Pepsi. So 
you know, obviously it's a lot easier now with digital to engage, you know, beyond just simply like disruptive ad messages that were really the only scalable options back then. But this is, I think, a really important lesson for today's marketers that even though Coke didn't realize it at the time, they were actually, I think, a lifestyle brand. There's a little bit of a myth that customers act rationally. It's a very well-known adage that sales with emotional selling just simply works better. You know, emotionally beats logic with when the chips are basically all down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if, if you're a lifestyle brand, right, and you're trying to unseat another lifestyle brand, you know, the only way to unseat a lifestyle brand is to provide an alternative to that lifestyle, right? A more attractive lifestyle and kind of help facilitate that transition, right? So that means engaging on a daily basis beyond the actual usage of the product itself, right? It literally means helping people build a new personal identity. So, you know, that has to tap into culture and self-image and and really be a constant presence yeah. besides just being, you know, a, a, a zippy campaign slogan. And this is where the market research went wrong initially because they didn't measure the impacts of the brand infinity or the rooted memories or the affiliation that people have with actual brand. Right. These emotions lie really deep in our brain. They anchored into the actual brand name of Coke, right? Versus just an ad campaign. But the reality is that without the emotional anchor, it's just not going to drive any change. And yep. that's exactly what played out over here. Yep. So in the end of 1985, Coke Classic was outselling both New Coke and Pepsi. They didn't just have this sunk cost fallacy, like, you know, we've got to double down on our, on our mistakes because we've already spent so much money. So right. if you think of like what happened in episode one with American Airlines, they did exactly just that. They didn't course correct and they just kept on piling on more and more and more on the mistake that they made. And Coke did the exact opposite year. Second, they really listened to their customer year and they listened to their bottlers and they looked at their sales data. So they took all the different aspects into account when making these decisions. Coca-Cola's director of corporate communications, Carlton Curtis, realized over time that customers were more upset about the withdrawal of the old formula than the taste of the new one. And then thirdly, they effectively leveraged their learnings. So they learn to fail forward, which is something that you and I talk about a lot yeah. in our both personal and our and our corporate lives. They use these learnings for future rollouts, and uh, we can actually see that in today's marketing, which I think is another bold move that they, with a partnership that they have with Netflix and Stranger Things. Yeah, I, I totally agree. That was equal parts brilliant and self-deprecating, actually. So for our listeners, if you're one of the few people who haven't seen Stranger Things, it's this really cool period piece set in the 1980s in suburban America. And Coke partnered with Netflix to feature new Coke on the show and coordinated to bring the flavor back for a limited time during the third season of Stranger Things, which is actually set in the summer of 1985. Perfect. Yeah, so they're just riding this massive wave of this 80s nostalgia that's coming back through Stranger Things. But they're actually launching an actual, the old or the old new Coke during this time too, right? Yes. You can buy the product. Yes, they made the product available. Didn't you say they had a lot of syrup sitting in a vault somewhere? You sure they're not <laughs> repurposing that? $30 million worth of expired <laughs> syrup sitting somewhere. So it is amazing. They're taking their digital marketing and tying into the real life sensing of their customers, their senses drinking the old new Coke, which is just incredible. So really it was Coca-Cola that weren't very crystal clear about their insights. And initially they made 
all these good decisions based on floor data, but their willingness for them to take massive risks to win here is just outstanding. The most amazing thing for me throughout this whole story is that the leadership could pivot the company on a dime. Yeah. So once they had information from their customer, from their sales and from their bottlers, they made really big moves and changed everything around, which is just absolutely incredible. Oh man, that's such good stuff. I mean, it's just such a cool story. Well, let's do the final one for this week. We both agreed on it's pretty easy. It's episode five, and it's a pledge that changed us. And from my perspective, it's just something I didn't know. I'm an immigrant. I'm the one that they warn you about that comes to your country and takes your work away. So uh, I just didn't know the history about it. <laughs> I like this one because it really gets into the philosophy of how marketing impacts so many different areas of our lives that we don't even realize the influence yeah. of marketing and so it's a really cool story. Yeah. And it's also, there's a lot of irony in it for me because there's a lot of diehard Pledge of Allegiance fans that would be very upset if they realized that it birthed from a PR campaign. <laughs> <laughs> the irony is just stunning in it. So yeah, let's listen to the final episode of our 2020 recap. Episode five, the pledge that changed us. It all starts in 1827 when a Boston, Massachusetts man named Perry Mason founded a magazine called The Youth's Companion. So I know we've started out this episode a little bit mysteriously, but we're not talking about the TV detective from the 1950s TV show, right? No, no, we're not. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, we're not. Funny, though, is that that fictional detective, Perry Mason, is actually a small character in our show today. Yeah. Thanks to a guy named Earl Stanley Gardner, who, when he was a kid, was really fond of this magazine that Perry Mason founded, The Youth's Companion. And so when Earl grew up and started his own writing career, he borrowed the name Perry Mason for his famous fictional attorney detective and based it off of the wow. founder of uh, the Youth's Companion magazine. I wonder if he did that because he knew the content of today's show or if he did that just because of the actual magazine itself. You know what I mean? Interesting. Ooh. So the early issues of this magazine, the Youth Companion, were centered around religion and patriotism. And they wanted to increase their subscription base. And they did this by expanding their audience. So in the 1890s, they started steering the content towards entertainment, and they were targeting both adults and children during this time. They also had a lot of uh, pieces contributed by really famous writers like Stowe, Mark Twain, Emily Dickinson, Booker Washington, and Jack London. So right in the middle of this expansion push for the youth companion to increase his circulation... What do we do if we need to do that? We come up with a <laughs> campaign, right? Of course. So they needed a marketing campaign so that they can increase the circulation. And the reason why they wanted to do that is because they can sell more ads. So this sounds super familiar to us, right? This is something that we all do. Yeah, exactly. It's still done today. If you're a publisher and you want to increase your revenue, there's a few ways to do that. And it's exactly what you just described. It's increasing yeah. your circulation or your digital impressions. Yeah. So you can sell more ads at a higher price, at a more premium value, attract better advertisers, better writers, the whole shebang. So yeah, this is very familiar territory. And this is actually where American history 
is about to change forever. Wow, that's a big statement. (laughs) It is a big statement, and it's going to be really interesting to hear this unfold. So James B. Upham, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly, and if not, I apologize, he was the marketing director in the magazine's premium department, and he came up with an idea to capitalize on the upcoming Columbian Exposition which was the 400th anniversary of Columbus's first journey to the New World. So this is really special one-time event, first time in 400 years it's happening. And they would use this kind of unique situation as an opportunity to put their magazine company in the spotlight, but they needed an organic way to do it versus, you know, just placing an ad and trying to connect themselves to it somehow. They just knew this was going to be a really big event. So... James decided that creating a special ceremony, including a pledge showing respect to the flag, would be something they could drive and own in kind of their own way because they were a magazine that had had this kind of political background. Mm -hmm. And it would be an on-brand execution for them and a great way to kick off the Columbus Day festivities through creating this mass recitation in schools across the country. That would be planned for October 21st, 1892. But in order to kind of pull this all together and make it happen, James needed a really good copywriter to come up with what the ceremony should consist of, what this short pledge should be. And so he hires someone named Francis Bellamy, who he brings on as a staff writer in his premium department. And one of his primary tasks is to write this pledge. The second big thing that they did was they came up with an idea to sell American flags at costs with the premium incentive to maintain the magazine's political influence, even though the content of the magazine was becoming less political. And most importantly, as an incentive to increase subscription rates, like we just said, to generate revenue. At the end of the day, they're trying to increase the subscriptions here because then they can run more ads and they can make more money. So their marketing campaign was a very familiar tactic, it's basically a loss leader. So on Black Friday, when you go into the store, they're selling these flat screen 65 inch TVs for like 250 bucks, right? And they know they're going to lose money on that. But the point is to get you into the store because once they get you in, you can't get out. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Your cart's going to be stacked full of like 20 items you didn't really need, but hey, they're on sale. But you really can't get out. Yeah, there's too many people. So it's a very common tactic. The Companion sent students across the country 100 free shares in the influence of the flag. They, in turn, were to raise money to buy their school flags by selling these shares to classmates at 10 cents a share. By the end of 1892, the magazine had sold flags to over 26,000 schools across the country with this program. Super successful. Wow, yeah. So Mike Bellamy also had this to say about it, quote, over 26,000 flags were sold at cost, or so said the youth's companion. The surrounding campaign certainly enhanced the magazine's considerable prestige and helped boost its circulation by 50%. A variety of pseudo-events were orchestrated by Bellamy, the project manager. These included a presidential proclamation, interviews with congressmen, and boilerplate editorials distributed to newspapers across the nation. The pledge attained its canonical status through this media blitz. Nothing of its scope had ever occurred before. 
Wow, so they really tapped into the patriotism thing over here, that vein. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, absolutely. So looking at the numbers here, they increased their circulation from 400,000 to 600,000. That's a 50% jump. And to put it in perspective here, during this time, this was the most popular magazine in circulation. In September 8th, 1892, about a month before the Columbus Day event, they published the first copy of the Pledge of Allegiance written by Francis Bellamy. And during the 1892 National Columbian Celebration ceremony, thousands of public kids recited the pledge and a new tradition was born. The success of this catapulted his advertising career, so to speak. This was his first big public deliverable campaign. And it was so successful, they sold so many magazines. His case study was so strong that he actually moved to New York City. And he worked in advertising for the following 19 years. He had a long stint at Ericsson Advertising Agency for six years. He was an account executive and a copywriter. And during this time, those were pretty prestigious roles. This is not like today yeah. where it's more of an entry-level role. And he was literally the earliest madman of, of Madison Avenue, the way we think about it. Wow. There's a really good description of this on tampapix.com where they say that he was instrumental in developing the industry as we know it because it was in the infancy stage of signboards, neon lights, double-page color ads, and really the beginning of radio ads. He believes in high-pressure advertising, and he also believed that advertising can be truthful. He also believed that advertising should create a demand for the increasing output of the American industry. He saw selling as a very, very important business tactic, and advertising copy was basically his speciality in doing that. So shortly after Columbus Day, where the pledges recited for the first time, school boards across the country began incorporating the Pledge of Allegiance into their daily morning flag raising ceremony. That was something that, you know, I think probably would have been a bonus to him, but he wasn't really kind of pushing for. And the phrase under God was incorporated into the Pledge of Allegiance on June 14th in 1954. So that was like a, a change order that came. To the, <laughs> the, the client requested a change later on. Obviously, you can debate and say that the flag would have been the flag without all of this happening. But the fact that it is recited every single morning to little children growing up for 12 years of being in school kind of like made the flag a very polarizing figure as well in the States. So it's being used in political debates and it's become like this capitalistic life that it's taken on all by itself. So Shelley Lapkoff is an expert of the pledge told the Washington Post and she said it was both to get people to have flags in keeping with their own beliefs of patriotism but also to help their business. Because just taking a step back here, this was to sell magazines. It's this viral campaign that catapulted over the last 130 years to where we are today. At the end of the day, I think the pledge is a story after all. It's a story about who we are as Americans, our identity, what we believe, how we see ourselves, what's important to us. And we tell stories to survive and orient ourselves in the world, whether it's as a business, culturally, and just as human beings, our stories really give us 
identity. The direction. Absolutely. Understanding of the world, which is not only an essential survival tool, but it's also kind of what gives us meaning in our personal lives. And so that all is reality because we're evolutionarily and kind of instinctively conditioned to pay attention to stories. It was how we knew to stay close to mom and dad as hunter-gatherers, right? Like we'd have these stories that would scare us into staying close, you know, as little kids, or to be wary of strangers from an unknown tribe or any of those types of things. Like stories are just passed down from generation to generation and were the primary mechanism for keeping us safe for a long time. And that there, what you just described, is what marketing and advertising taps into. Our brains have evolved to release dopamine and oxytocin, which like really embeds emotion and memories deeply into our brains, right? So we see something, we hear something, a jingle, or read something from an old ad that we saw when we were growing up, and automatically it's got a physiological effect on us. Right. And I think this is exactly why this story is so powerful, because Balani knew the power of storytelling. And he knew, because this is a, a 360 campaign, for lack of a better word, I'm sure it was back then, because they didn't have all the tactics and the mediums we have today. So over the years, this story has been retold and reframed and has really evolved into what we have today. And I can guarantee you that the large majority of our listeners that is listening to this today did not know this. And there are a lot of things that we're exposed to that has shaped us as human beings that started not in storytelling the stuff that your granddad told you, storytelling that, that a copywriter wrote. And I think that's why it's so powerful to understand that marketing influences everything that we do on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, it's good stuff. Yeah, I just love going back and re-listening to these because even as we've gotten through now 40 episodes, it's great to go back and remember what we've done because even as the host of the podcast, you know, you kind of forget some of these details and it's been really fun to relive that. Absolutely. So everybody tune in next week for part two of our three-part series recapping all of the greatest hits from 2020. Thanks for listening, everybody. Speak to you next week. You've been listening to the Marketing Rescue Podcast. This show is hosted by Nico Katsia and Chad Childress, the co-founders of KPI Agency, a marketing rescue agency. Be sure to visit marketingrescuepodcast.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, contact the hosts, and discover fantastic bonus content.